Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon. We are on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com. And our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access, is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. And over there, we are offering at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. Also, the final gorgeous gorgeous of this year, this is my queer pop party, will be happening in Los Angeles at Resident Downtown on 12-16. That is two days from today. That is Saturday. Please come out if you're in the area. We'd love to see you for the final send-off for Gorgeous Gorgeous this year. Ticket link will be in the show notes of this episode, and I'm really looking forward to that. All right, so this is the final installment of our Mariah Carey trilogy. If you haven't listened to the first two, I highly recommend going back and checking those two out before you get into this. Also, we did a Patreon episode about Mariah's ascent to the Queen of Christmas, which is also maybe not essential, but definitely recommended. This week, we are covering Mariah's largely unprecedented comeback with 2005's The Emancipation of Mimi and its attendant hits like We Belong Together, all the way through her latest album, 2018's Caution. We're also talking about all the records in between, her time on American Idol, her ascent a bit to the Queen of Christmas, although we get more in depth on that in the Patreon episode, and a lot about her kind of camp diva persona, which I think is very familiar to a lot of people who are on the internet and who have gotten to know her over the last 10 years and her memoir. And of course, we conclude with ranking Mariah Carey in the official pop pantheon. I know it's the moment everybody's been waiting for. So without further ado, here is part three of our trilogy on Mariah Carey. If Mariah Carey had never released another album after 2002's Charm Bracelet, we'd still think of her as a legend. She had, after all, dominated the 1990s in nearly unprecedented fashion. A, a nearly unbroken string of diamond and multi-platinum albums, 15 number one singles, all but one of which self-composed, and a rather elegant musical evolution that had allowed her to speak to both the AC bombast of the early decade and the ascendant hip-hop culture of the latter. And of course, the five-octave singing range that would certainly be held up as one of the most awe-inspiring to ever be laid on wax. Even while things might have ended with a bit of a whimper following the embarrassment of 2001's Glitter and the non-event of 2002's Charm Bracelet, it would have been hard to argue that Mariah hadn't defined an entire era of pop history. But even with all those achievements under her belt, it is her unexpected and pretty much unparalleled comeback in 2005, a moment where Mimi rose from the ashes of flopdom to reclaim not only success, but mount perhaps the biggest and most enduring era of her career, not to mention her signature hit in a literal cornucopia of legendary smashes that elevated Mariah Carey from mere legend to pop cultural deity. Pop 
Pop stardom can be a fickle mistress, and all the more so for women as they move further into their 30s. No one had experienced this more acutely than Mariah Carey, who, in 1999, just as she rounded the corner into her fourth decade, had released yet another in a seemingly endless string of commercial triumphs with her seventh studio album, Rainbow, while just two years later being completely dismissed for its follow-up glitter. Comebacks, meanwhile, while frequently attempted, are exceedingly rare in the space. For every Tina Turner, Diana Ross, or Madonna, there are about 500 other former titans who, despite ceaseless valiant attempts to reclaim the center, are simply iced out for eternity. Once you're done, you're usually done for good. If Mariah wanted any chance at getting back in the public's and radio's good graces, she needed a hard reset, a miracle, and some absolutely undeniable songs. Lucky for her and us, she got all three with 2005's The Emancipation of Mimi. Following the failure of the business-as-usual charm bracelet, Mariah decided to shift her approach on Mimi, largely ditching the trendy hip-hop sheen of her recent work and gesturing directly towards soul music of the 1970s. After notably placing it on the back burner for much of her previous record, she also refocused on her voice, which, while slightly diminished from the sheer Olympian flexibility of her 90s peak, now possessed a grit that, when employed properly, lent a soulfulness which critics had often claimed she lacked. Most critically, though, she tapped old buddy Jermaine Dupri, architect of the slick mid-tempo hits like Always Be My Baby, which had helped nudge Mariah towards contemporary Black musical styles without losing her broad appeal, and who had just come off producing one of the biggest albums of the decade, Usher's blockbuster Confessions, the year prior. Together with Dupri and other collaborators like the Neptunes, Kanye West, and neo-soul master James Poyser, Mariah moved her music and persona into a new guise for a new decade, while reminding audiences what they'd loved about her in the first place. Above all else, though, Mimi simply had the hits. Lead single It's Like That, an edgy, spare, darker-toned club banger courtesy of Dupree, returned Mariah to the top 20 of the Hot 100 for the first time as a solo artist since Loverboy four years prior. But it was, of course, the second single that changed everything. The Dupree-helmed We Belong Together, a mid-tempo ballad which mines the bounce of Always Be My Baby, the intricate rhythmic rap singing of Breakdown, and the absolutely titanium-plated choruses of her early ballads, became the number one song in the U.S. for 14 weeks, eventually named the biggest song of the 2000s by Billboard, and 15 years and 15 number ones into her career, perhaps Mariah's crowning achievement creatively, commercially, and otherwise. The Emancipation of Mimi produced two more Smash songs, both produced by Dupree. The bouncy kiss-off Shake It Off, which hit number two, and her 17th number one single, We Belong Together's Twin Flame, Don't Forget About Us. Mimi went on to be the best-selling album of 2005, spending eight weeks at number one, going seven times platinum in the U.S., and selling over 10 million copies worldwide. It is, to my eyes and ears, the greatest comeback in pop music history. Mariah followed it up in 2008 with E equals MC squared. Framed as a sequel to Emancipation and led off by her 18th chart topper, the purring lascivious camp classic Touch My Body, the record had two main functions, exploring a panoply of new contemporary aesthetics for Mariah, like electropop and reggae on half the songs, while trying, and largely failing, to recreate the formula and magic of We Belong Together on the other half. The album produced one more top 20 hit, the platinum-selling One Sweet Day sequel Bye Bye, but failed to launch any hits after 
that and ended up selling about a sixth of what Mimi had a few years prior. Mariah quickly followed it up a year later with Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel, an album-length collaboration with then-red-hot production and songwriting duo Tricky Stewart and The Dream. Memoirs, an eccentric album in Mariah's discography, which is at once one of her most idiosyncratic lyrically, featuring an absolute deluge of her classic Mariahisms, yet features perhaps her least actual singing, got mixed reviews. Lead single, the dirgy Eminem diss track Obsessed, went triple platinum and became Mariah's final top 10 with one very festive asterisk. But no other songs got off the ground at radio and the album barely went platinum. The same year as Memoirs was released, Mariah appeared in the film Precious to rave reviews and a Screen Actors Guild nomination. In 2010, she released a sequel to Merry Christmas called Merry Christmas to You that sold more than half a million copies but didn't quite reach the heights of her previous holiday record. The next year, she gave birth to twins and took a step back from recording, instead serving as a judge for a season of American Idol in 2012, for which she became notorious for her ongoing feud with fellow judge Nicki Minaj. Five years after Memoirs, Mariah Mariah returned in 2014 with Me, I Am Mariah, The Elusive Chanteuse, the absolutely unhinged title of which masked what was a very solid, if disjointed, late period entry into her catalog. Elusive had a messy rollout and produced one minor hit, the Miguel featuring soul throwback Beautiful, but didn't connect beyond Mariah's core fan base. In this time period, though, Mariah ascended to the top of two pop cultural spaces adjacent but not entirely tied to her pop hits. A resurgence of her mid-90s Christmas class classic All I Want for Christmas Is You found new legs on streaming, eventually becoming her 19th number one, and anointing Mariah the Queen of Christmas to a whole new generation of fans. Meanwhile, her camp diva persona, calcified in classic shady memes such as her iconic brush-off to a question about rival Jennifer Lopez in an interview, I don't know her, gained new purchase on social media and established Mariah's persona, if not necessarily her hits, for the internet era. Her most recent album, 2018's notably relaxed Caution, was her best reviewed in years and, while it didn't quite grab monoculture by the throat as she once had, developed a solid cult audience. Her 2020 memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, was rapturously reviewed and a number one bestseller in the New York Times. As we speak, Mariah is currently touring arenas in North America with the Merry Christmas One and All Tour. Mariah Carey has sold over 220 million records worldwide. She has two Diamond albums, 14 Platinum albums, and one Platinum EP. She is the highest certified female artist in the United States ever, with over 74 million album units sold. She has 26 platinum singles and 19 number one hits, the most for a solo artist, a female songwriter, and a female producer. Mariah has spent 90 weeks at number one, making her the artist with the most weeks at number one in US history. She has received five Grammy Awards, 10 American Music Awards, 15 Billboard Music Awards, 19 World Music Awards, 10 American Music Awards, 31 BMI Pop Music Awards, 5 Soul Train Music Awards, 1 MTV Europe Music Awards, 2 MTV TRL Awards, 2 NAACP Image Awards, a People's Choice Award, 2 Teen Choice Awards, 4 Vibe Awards, a Glad Media Award, a Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, a Variety Power of Women Award, and a Billboard Icon Award. Oh my god. She was named Billboard's Artist of the Decade for the 90s, and Rolling Stone ranked her as the third greatest singer of all time in 2020. 23.
Here with me to wrap up our discussion on the butterfly, Mariah Carey, is, of course, pot psychology's Rich Joswiak. All right, so I'm here once again with pot psychology's Rich Joswiak. Rich, welcome back to the show once again. Thank you for having me once again. My pleasure. Obviously, we were not getting through this series without you. So this was an inevitability two and a half years in the making for us and longer for you. Yes. Let's start here. I mean, Mariah Carey is your providence to many people on the internet. Why? How did you end up being one of the premier voices of Mariah Carey-ism online? I think because I wrote about her seriously early on. I don't know if you remember Stylist Magazine run by Todd Burns. Mm -hmm. I wrote a review of Charm Bracelet on that, and that was like an in-depth kind of long-form look at that album, which I think is a fascinating... That album almost feels like an intentional failure to me. The idea that that was her comeback was like, what? Yeah, perplexing. No, you're doing whatever you want and you're whispering the whole time. (laughs) So I think that, and then when The Emancipation of Mimi came out, that was such a huge moment. That was such an exciting time to be a Mariah Carey fan. Right. So... I don't know. I just, before I even started writing my blog, I just kind of knew that the prevailing narrative of the day back then in the early aughts that she was junky or somehow unworthy of her status was wrong. And so it was just kind of my mission to refute that. I feel like the pendulum has swung back a little bit too much. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for is like the permanent lesson of my life. But that said, I'd rather people be fawning at her than disdaining her. Right. What do you think you saw in her in that moment that other people weren't seeing? Well, I think a huge part of it was the camp or just humor factor. Mm. She was always this fascinatingly tragic figure to me, kind of preternaturally ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that she does have this incredible talent, that she really does have this, for better or worse, auteur approach to her work. I mean, I made a supercut of her talking about the fact that nobody gives her credit for being a songwriter, constantly talking about that. Yes. That is included in episode one of this series, that supercut. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And it's also, I think, the idea of her as a singer-songwriter, you know, in the same way that Aretha Franklin's piano playing was just so underrated, her just general musicianship, her arrangements were so amazing. It's the same kind of thing with Mariah, where she was just seen as this voice Mm. when she was doing so much more clearly. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is read the liner notes to understand that. Mm. And also, there's really so much of her persona from probably like Butter fly on just imbued in her music in a way that these kind of classic divas don't often have. That persona comes through the voice and maybe interviews or whatever, but her lyrics in terms of her lingo and her tendencies, only she could be writing these lyrics. So I always thought that she was underrated, seen as this kind of milk toast whatever. And she clearly always had so much more to offer that was just there for the taking if you so choose to take it. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think her position in popular culture or the level of respect she receives in popular culture kind of mirrors the rise of optimism. Yes. As someone who I think throughout her career, maybe like more so than almost any other pop star is very comfortable in the center. I mean, she is a pop star. I mean, one thing that we were talking about a lot in the early 
episodes of the show is another thing that sort of differentiated Mariah early on from the other big voiced divas of her generation is she actually didn't grow up singing in the church. She grew up in the church of pop radio. Yes. Her background was as a pop connoisseur, as the cliche goes, the student of pop or whatever. And R&B too. And R&B, right. KTU, the fact that she's covering Stay a Little Wild Child and If You Should Ever Be Only, this is stuff that only real heads know. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing I just want to mirror back to you about what you were saying about the reappraisal that's gone on in terms of her song craft, in particular in her status as a singer-songwriter and producer, is that I think that's the reason we have the period that we're talking about today, which is an incredibly unlikely period of resurgence for her. I mean, she basically rose from the ashes in this period and had one of the biggest hits of her career, a series of huge hits. I just stack that up largely to the fact that unlike so many of her peers, and I don't just include the Celines and Whitney's in this category, but so many other pop stars of different ilks, Britney and even Madonna, another person we were speaking about on this show together, Mariah Carey can sit down and write a hit song. That is something that Yes, we will remember Mariah for the five octave range and we'll remember her for the diva antics and we'll remember her for the comedy and for Christmas and all the other aspects of her persona that obviously are integral to creating this long career and this long tale of celebrity that we're experiencing right now. But I think all of it essentially hinges on the fact that more so than most pop stars, not all obviously, but more so than most pop stars, especially most centrist pop stars that are this focused on being the broadest appealing stars of all time, can sit down at a piano and essentially plink out hit songs. I think that skill is most important in this particular moment. It's evident in other areas and it came into focus probably in the mid-period of her career on Butterfly, etc. But that skill is centralized in this period more so than other periods because A, she doesn't have the voice as she used to have it through a lot of this work. And B, she proves herself as defying the expectations of the shelf life of a pop star through the fact that she can actually just write the hits. Yeah. So before we get into the conversation about emancipation, and you were touching on this briefly because you did review Charm Bracelet. I reread that for the last episode. Can you just talk to us about where Mariah's career was at prior to emancipation, how she was viewed in terms of her career success and also as a public figure. How did people see her in 03, 04, her career and her more broadly? Okay, so she was pretty much a joke starting with glitter. I mean, I think all along people were not rooting for her because there was never this underdog aspect to her. She sings and make it happen about how hard it was, whatever, and obviously her life was very tumultuous leading up to that. But as far as star trajectories go, Like the first guy who listened to her demo gave her a deal, married her. And I think it's very clear, I don't have actual evidence of this, but it's very clear that there was something going on that was allowing her to have the exposure that she did beyond the talent and the songs. I think there was a huge promotional push Mm. from Sony. One could feasibly argue that there was payola happening. Mm. It's just like that kind of imperial period was basically unheard of just 
the string of number ones, her ability, even when there was a misstep with emotions, she came right back with Music Box, which went diamond, and then Daydream goes diamond, all this stuff. So she was a very hard person, I think, to root for. Mm. I think she became more interesting with Butterfly, and then Rainbow is kind of eccentric, and she's Mm -hmm. also, at the time, taking off her clothes more and more post-Tommy. Right. So she's got that thing happening. Glitter comes, the movie is a flop, the soundtrack is a flop, despite it having its strengths, and at that time as well, she has this cataclysmic breakdown, Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of people saw her as almost a poor little rich girl at that point. What are you crying for? You have everything. Mm. When, in fact, I think the major thing beyond the mental illness stuff, it was just so clear that she was sleep deprived. I mean, she's just so punch drunk when you watch her in interviews because she's got this crazy deal with Virgin that was like a $50, $100 million deal. I think she ended up getting paid like $50 million for Glitter. I think it's the most expensive album of all time. She barely takes a beat and then she comes back the next year with Charm Bracelet, which is a very strange record in terms of she wants to make this comeback clearly and seems to no longer have the tools to even do that. It's just so weird because it's such a willful album in a way. And it's just like, I don't know what made you think that any of this would possibly be a hit. I mean, I guess Through the Rain did pretty well in Europe. I think in the UK it went top 10 or something. Mm. But in general, that just wasn't going to fly. That said, I Know What You Want with Busta Rhymes was a very, very big hit. I think it went to number three on Billboard. And it was huge in part because of her. Yes. People like that song because of her. Mommy, listen. So there was still something there, and she has a little bit more traction with You Make Me Wanna with Jada Kiss, which I think was 2004. Yes. And that just missed the top 20. So there's the idea that as long as Mariah can come back with some music, maybe people will pay attention to her again. But the music's got to be right. It's got to work. And certainly she's not going to get the attention that she seems to think she will get just by showing up. She's got to put a little bit more work into communing with the public. There's three things I want to say in reaction to this. One is Charm Bracelet, idiosyncratic, strange album, but also doesn't have the obvious hits of previous albums. I mean, the thing about Mariah is, yes, who knows what the machinations are, behind the scenes, but there's undeniable hits on every single one of the records. For sure. Through Glitter, I would say. I mean, I think Glitter has some unrealized hits on it as well, more so than Charm Bracelet does. I agree. I even think Loverboy is a good song. For sure. But I also think like Lead the Way and Never Too Far. Never Too Far. If things had gone differently, could have been smashes. Yeah. But I think that Charm Bracelet is the first Mariah album where it's not totally clear where the hit is. I mean, I don't think Through the Rain is stacking up to the great Mariah songs. And I also think at that point, we're sort of beyond that style of ballad in pop culture. And I think that her sort of attempting to reconjure the magic of the early ballads was sort of a weird, misguided attempt. An understandable impulse, perhaps, but not necessarily the right one. The other two things I want to bring up are questions I have around credibility, which is something we were touching on earlier, which is how much of Mariah is not being seen as a credible artist or being sort of derided during this period, you mentioned it, had to do with the way she was presenting herself sartorially and physically as this sort of sexed up image, quote unquote. And then 
a lot of Mariah's innovations as a pop star have to do with her embrace of hip hop culture, which I think was also still probably struggling for its own legitimacy in this period, especially in this context of pop music. So part of me is wondering, as the music left the vocal acrobatics of the early period and became so much more rooted in this kind of rhythmic singing and this embrace of hip hop gestures, figures, sounds, cadences, very contemporary sounding. I mean, Charm Brace has a lot of very contemporary sounding pop, hip hop and B. It's a Shanti adjacent. It's Jennifer Lopez adjacent, even though they're obviously building on innovations that she had done earlier in the 90s. Was the perception like, and I hate to use this term because obviously calling someone in their early 30s grandma's ridiculous, but is it kind of like grandma's trying to like sex it up or this older generation pop star is trying to play with the kids or sort of a lack of recognition of her as an innovator in that space and seeing her as essentially like trying to age in reverse. Is that part of the undermining of her credibility and the derision of her general vibe during the pre-emancipation era? It could have been. I mean, I think we talked about this on the Tony episode and also the Madonna episode. This was a really hard time for established veteran divas. Right. Everybody flopped. Right. Whitney flopped with just Whitney. Madonna's American Life flopped. Tony Braxton flopped. Mariah flopped. Janet was on her way to flopping. And what we saw instead was the rise of this a-charismatic figure right. like Sierra and Jennifer Lopez. And I would say I love both of them. Right. But there is something about their blankness that was what was selling at that point. I never got the sense at that point that her age was being held against her. Maybe that was naive of me, but you just figured Madonna's peak was Blonde Ambition era. She was about 33 or 34 at that point. I don't think that that is too much of a problem. I think once you get past 40, it becomes an issue for the pop charts. But I think pre-40, you're okay. But I do think, to your point about the legitimacy of hip-hop, right. about whether or not she's sincere in her pursuit of that genre and those sounds, which she was. I mean, she turned a corner with Butterfly and then stuck with it. That was not just some passing fancy. Absolutely. Drilled down on it. Exactly. I think that she could have had a much easier time, maybe fewer hits, but a much easier time with her legacy if she stayed the AC kind of M.O.R. diva like Celine Dion, right. whose legacy never tarnished. I mean, Celine Dion stopped making hits, but I think she retained a huge percentage of her audience that Mariah just did not. So I think it was probably that, and I think it was a matter of, at least critically and in terms of people who are talking and thinking, quote, seriously about music, are just taking Black people, Black women especially, less seriously, right. people who make commercial R&B and hip-hop less seriously. It's just seen, I think, by some old guard as just being less serious music. Right. I think that was probably the issue more than anything. Yeah, that seems right to me. But, you know, I think what's so interesting about it is that her... Innovations in that melding of hip hop or even streeter sort of hip hop between the ODB song obviously being the big bang of this and then her continued collaborations with edgier hip hop artists because obviously pop stars in the past had brought hip hop into their music but only in kind of cheesy ways. I think about Black or White by Michael Jackson or even the All Right remix with Heavy D or whatever. Yes. Having someone with such a pristine image as Mariah pull someone like ODB into her music was a pretty radical idea at that time that then became the sort of de record format for a lot of pop stars including Jennifer Lopez as Ashanti Sierra, etc. But I think that it's interesting because perhaps it wouldn't have tarnished her legacy, but I think it also provided the forum for this next era of her career because her fluency with that 
ever centralizing aspect of pop music in hip hop allowed her to occupy that space in an authentic way that her peers couldn't. Like when Madonna attempted to rap on American Life, everyone was like, excuse me, what? Yeah. Whereas Mariah, everyone was like, yes, you collaborating with contemporary rappers or rapping in your own music is something that's part of her brand, part of her artistry for a while, looking back at it. And also, I think there's a lot of fans, including a lot of listeners to this podcast that way prefer this latter period of her music than the early stuff. So her career might have been more of a straight line, but I don't think she would have had this level of longevity as a hit maker if she hadn't been that person. I don't think so either. And I also think that the way that her voice changed was that it became more soulful as her power diminished because she actually had to use it. There's a period in time in her early career, let's say through Daydream, where she just like opened her lungs and that was it. And a lot of the critical consensus was she doesn't have soul. She's just a performer. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she actually had to kind of reach for the emotion and change up her voice and change her flow and do different things with her voice, I think was really beneficial to her overall soulfulness. I mean, when she sings We Belong Together, I feel that. A hundred percent. I think that's her most soulful performance. And she has a lot of them that we're going to talk about. Yes, yes. And I think also in that conversion from effortless to effortfulness, as you mentioned, you get like a fullness of personhood. There's a sense of, as you mentioned, just like a blunt instrumentness to the early work that I think is both something to marvel at, but hard to connect to. And I think that there's something in watching her reach or struggle to sing that I think in certain moments gets hard to deal with. But I think especially (laughs) in the beginning of the period we're talking today adds texture and feeling. And I think that the other thing that's really interesting that contrasts what I was saying earlier about her embrace of the contemporary hip hop space is that it feels like to me, the thing that actually ends up turning her career around is a deep embrace of nostalgia. And I think nostalgia has always been an interesting element that you could frame a lot of Mariah's songs around. She's often singing about looking back at love lost or trying to recapture a moment of her childhood or past. She's very effective at bringing forth nostalgia like on Underneath the Stars or Fourth of July or The Roof or whatever it is. But here, I think we get into a period where Mariah both thematically and in terms of the kind of music she's turning to on Emancipation starts to utilize her knowledge of music past to kind of, I don't mean this derogatory, it's probably the wrong word, but to class up the idea of what Mariah music is and in contrast to some of these latter period 90s and early 2000s albums. So with that in mind, can you talk to me a little bit about how you view how Mariah shifts her approach to emancipation as she goes into the making of this album versus a charm bracelet or a rainbow? Well, it's definitely more up. Yeah. What we know about this album is that in its initial configuration, it was also going to be probably a disaster. Mm. I remember when they did this, they circulated Say Something. It had a tag on it, and it was clearly an internal leak to gauge interest. And Say Something they eventually did release as a single, and it flopped. Right. Which was kind of amazing because she was basically like, can't lose at this point. Right. I don't think that song works. I don't think the other Neptune song works. Yeah. There is obviously a lot of good stuff on here. They needed the kind of direct pipeline back to the audience to really get people to pay attention to what else is going on in the album. So she submits the album and Ellie Reed's like, no, you have to actually do more. And that's when Jermaine Dupri, her trusty collaborator- 
is brought back on and proves his worth tenfold because during this period they record it's like that got your number and we belong together and shake it off right and those are the singles those those are the massive massive hits so she needed a little bit something else and Jermaine Dupri whom she'd worked with on Always Be My Baby and Never Forget You I think from Music Box yes and long ago and long ago that's right Mm -hmm. I think he was essential to it and what these songs do especially We Belong Together in contrast to the kind of the other ballads they contemporize the balladry Mm. using the template of Lovers and Friends the Usher Lil Wayne track I mean it's basically a retread of that it's just better right Tell me again, my And a lot of Jermaine's work on Confessions. I mean, I definitely hear Confessions Part 2 in a lot of this production and Burn. Those songs all feel indebted to that record, which came out exactly a year before. Exactly a year before. was a huge blockbuster. And it's basically like, here's Mariah's Confessions. And hey, it worked. These are my confessions. Just when I thought I said all I can say, my chick on the side says she got one on the way. I just wonder in terms of what Jermaine does or what Jonte Austin, who wrote a lot of the Jermaine songs with Mariah, does. Why were they good collaborators, do you think, for her to turn back to? Of all the people she had worked with in her career, what do you think it was about what they do in particular that felt like the perfect return for this moment? There is something about Less Is More with Mariah. Her voice is so full, even in its state in 2005, that to give her space for it really works. I'm thinking of the Fantasy remix, which basically threw everything away except for the beat and the bass line and just kind of let her go. And I think it's a far better production than the original Fantasy, which is kind of cluttered to me. And so it's part that. I also think that unlike basically anybody else she encounters, she really trusts Charmaine Dupri. Yes. You see how her defanging her collaborators was a huge liability on memoirs. And I think it's that they are really conversant with hip-hop right. and they're just not half-stepping there. Right. They're doing the thing. These are like hip-hop tracks that she's singing over in a very Mary J. Blige way. Yes. And it really works. She's very comfortable doing so. I I think it's also that they're hip-hop tracks, but they're broadly so. They don't feel like they're grabbing at trendy hip-hopness. They just sort of have a broad sense of their roots in the bounce of hip-hop, but they're almost timeless sounding. They don't sound remarkably different production-wise from Always Be My Baby, which was at that point 10 years before. the combination of the broadness and the idiosyncrasies of her writing style work really well together. But I think that some of her stumbles in this period of her career have to do when she micro-targets specific trendy hip-hop things, like yes. remaking the Cameron song, which like I like, but yeah. I think that what she needed here was a return to that broader palette. And not by going back to the Walter ballads of the early 90s, but by readdressing the moment where she was the most important, which was where she was able to find that sweet spot between the big pop diva Mariah and the beginning of her forays into hip-hop, which I think is why Jermaine was integral at that moment, and then returning to him felt smart at a moment where the fruits of their innovations together were really at the peak of their moment. Like, everything that was happening in pop, from all the girls that we've been talking about dominating the space to hip-hop's general crossover to the top of the charts and glistening pop version of hip-hop, were in many ways indebted to things Mariah had done in the past. So, that felt prescient to me. Yes. All right, so, first single is It's Like That. I think this is a really 
interesting choice because to me, this is one of the songs that sounds different than many past Mariah songs. Can you talk about what it's like that is like and why this felt like an important introduction to this album, even as it's a bit of a red herring, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of a red herring and it's got like a goodies kind of vibe <laughs> stripped down. Right. The 808s. Re-listening to it, I was thinking of the Fantasy remix. It's a very spacious track. It's kind of subtle in a way. The chorus is, it's my night, no stress, no fights. I'm leaving it all behind, no tears, no time to cry, just making the most of life. That is kind of the most anti-Mariah statement than one could think of. Yes. She is all about stress and fights and right. <laughs> tears and crying and making the most of life in a way that is so indebted, so immersed in the emotions of it all. So it does feel like a shedding of skin but I just think that that really worked. There's something about the song. The hook is so subtle that it almost, certainly when it came out, it was not at all a guarantee that this was going to be a hit. No. Especially given her track record and everything. But it just creeps up on you. And that was kind of a nice look for her. A less is more kind of thing that she had on. There's an edge to it that I don't necessarily feel in a lot of Mariah's, especially single choices over her career. There's always this focus on the glisten, the sheen, the sort of sparkliness. Yeah. And this song has a dark edge to it that I think is unique and I think was smart. It feels like a bit of a throat clearing and a reset for Persona. Yes. And also positions Mariah as a club creature in a way that I don't necessarily think of her in her past music. Like, yes, she had obviously made songs that were big hits in clubs and alluded to disco. And I'm not saying that Mariah wasn't making dance music before this, but there's something in the persona that this evokes. The whole song is about going out and like dancing. Yes, it's like the club. Yeah, the club, being in the club. Yeah. You know, it has that kind of vibe to it. And then of course, I think one thing obviously we're going to be returning to a lot in this period increasingly is just the camp factor. And of course, how that's rendered through the use of Mariah-isms. I think them chickens is Ash and I'm Lotion is probably the ultimate Mariah Carey Mariah-ism. You get this real sense of abandon in terms of her idiosyncratic songwriting style that I feel like is integral to all of the music in this period. Yes, and I think that that has worn on people as time has gone on, but it still felt novel enough. Like, what is she talking about? That's kind of interesting, as opposed to like, oh, Mariah's doing her Mariah thing again, and I'm 12 right. and don't really have time to pay attention to this lady doing her thing. She was nowhere near the Mae West kind of figure that she's since become. Right. It still felt fun and delightful as opposed to put on. I think the other thing that feels important to note here as we were sort of contrasting this with Charm Bracelet is I think she needed a song that is about shaking off the past. This song is very much an embrace of sort of carefreeness and saying, fuck you to everything that happened to me beforehand. We're starting again. Think about that in contrast to Through the Rain, which is very maudlin take on, I have survived my trauma and I here's all my pain. This song is very much kind of a middle finger to the entire narrative that had been wrapped around her to that point. I think that felt like a smart narrative move for her. Yes, the idea was that she can make it through the rain 
brain of like a flop. That song just makes you think about the flop, like when you listen to it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It just felt like a big pity party for a superstar who's going to be fine no matter what. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And so doing that left turn here and being like, actually, you know what? Literally, fuck it. Yes. Was right. That's where people were. She aligns herself with the audience by being like, no, let's not do that again. Yes, 100%. So this song is, you know, a pretty big hit. It hits number 16, not gigantic, but I think goes a ways in proving that she's still in the game. But obviously it's the second single, We Belong Together, that is the one that resets Mariah's career entirely. We've touched on this a little bit. Also produced by Dupree, as I mentioned, I think it's purposefully going at Always Be My Baby in terms of the way the production sounds. How would you describe this song, what it's about? It's a very different sounding song. Why is this the song in your mind? I mean, you've talked about this a little, but I'm curious if we could drill down further on that. Well, I think she was always butthurt about the fact that Breakdown never got an official single release and always kind of wanted to recapture that magic or show to the world that this double time flowy singing could actually work. And so here she does it, especially on the second verse, which is entirely different than the first. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Right. But I just think the stars aligned with this song. It's about the deep 808 beats And it's about the very simple sentiment. I didn't mean it when I said I didn't love you so. I should have held on tight. I never should have let you go. I didn't know nothing. I was stupid. I was foolish. I was lying to and it's about the very specific lyric that she has, specifically about when she's flipping through the radio. She's putting herself on the same level as her listeners. She's not this diva in the stratosphere. She's just some sad woman who's turning to a song for relief like others would do for this song. I can't sleep at night when you are on my mind. And I really think it is about that second verse and the way that her flow is just a marvel. It is. It's almost like the Frankensteining together of everything that you want from a Mariah song. In the confines of a big emotional ballad, you have the rhythmic rapping, you have the Mariah-isms, the sort of idiosyncratic lyrical approach, you have the sort of crate digging references, which I think are a really important part of Mariah's legacy from Genius of Love through all of the samples in her hip hop tracks to, I mean, we didn't even touch on Run DMCs, it's like that being the foundation of it's like that. I mean, Mariah as musical historian, especially of black music history, is a very important part of her legacy. And then you get the sort of storytelling both in lyric and in vocal performance that I feel like is an incredibly important part of Mariah's artistry. It's something that's there in Vision of Love, the build of Vision of Love towards that climax. She's incredibly good at storytelling through her voice. And also in the case of this song, you have a very well-constructed song structure, the verse-verse chronicling this breakup. There's the sorrowful atonement sort of vibe to it. And then there's the second verse that leans into, as you mentioned, how she 
she's attempting to parse through that. And then it sort of builds through this gigantic climax where you do get finally the release of the vocal talent into the final whistle tone. This is the moment where I guess you get everything that maybe people had wanted in a Mariah song put into one container. The last thing I would say about it is what I was hinting at earlier, which is the long tail of the song on this period of her career is something we're obviously going to address over and over again because she definitely tries to recreate this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> she is a very effective capture of nostalgia. Yeah. This song is about looking backwards and the beautiful wistfulness of past love, I feel like is Mariah's absolute strong suit. Yes. And I think about it as a bit of like a heartbreaking idea because here you have somebody that was robbed of what many people call their second adolescence. A big part of Mariah's story is that her early 20s, through the early part of her career, she was deprived of a normal life. She was deprived of normal coming into her adult sexuality. And I think so much of her later career in Persona is about a sort of attempt to recapture that for herself. So I think this song and her as a creature of nostalgia or someone that is able to convey nostalgia so effectively has to do with the fact that she truly does look back and I think regret works well on her, not in the sort of woe is me sense, but she makes regret sound kind of beautiful, bouncy, wistful, glistening. There's a lighthearted sense of nostalgia and regret that I feel like is Mariah's main currency as an emotional creature on record to me. Yeah, I agree. I remember the first time I heard this song, she had premiered it on the radio and it was just like, I cannot believe she did it. Before the second verse, it was just like, oh my God. I know that she's talked about it's like that, being really excited for that song. She really felt like she had something, but it, this had to have been an electric moment for her. There was no way that this song wasn't going to be a massive, massive hit. And then it was even bigger than anybody could imagine. I mean, Billboard's legacy weighing of hits is a little bit strange, whatever, but I think it's technically, according to Billboard, still her biggest hit. It is. Yes, I was reading that this morning. Yeah. It's just one of those moments where it's just like, the song fucking bangs. This song is so good. Still. Never gets old. Never gets old. I always want to hear it. I love it every time. Me too. It's so fun to sing. This song sounds great to me still. It doesn't feel dated. It feels 100% out of time in a way that the best pop songs do, I think. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Mariah can write a hit song. It it just is what it is. It's very much her song. It sounds like her. It's not written for her. It's bespoke and yet broad. It has everything that she wanted and more. Mariah's had great hits. She probably has songs I like better than this song, but I don't think there's anything that expresses why Mariah Carey is one of the most important and greatest pop stars of all time than this song at this moment and how it all came together. Totally. That is why Mariah Carey is who she is. So let's talk about the rest of Emancipation, which is, as I mentioned earlier, and maybe you disagree with my characterization here, but I think this is a very self-consciously retro-nodding record. I mean, you brought up mine again. There's a definite sense of gesturing towards 70s soul things going on here. Yeah, she has a literal trombone on this album. Yes, which feels like a very self-conscious and important move narratively. I mean, even if the main singles are not necessarily this way, I feel like in terms of the way that this record is reestablishing her credibility in a time where that felt very diminished, we can talk about how annoying it is that we have to gesture at past modes of styles of music in order to have credibility and how irritating that is. But I think that works really well for her here. Yeah, well, they're good songs is the thing. This is her most grown up 
album in a long time. I do think there was this feeling of dissonance maybe between her age and the type of music she was making. I know you were saying that you didn't necessarily clock that, but I was thinking about that. Reading some of the reviews, for instance, from the critical establishment of past records, there's a lot of sort of, why is she dressing slutty? She's 30 whatever years old. This is crazy. Whatever. Yeah. So the songs to me that work the best on this album outside of the singles are songs like Stay the Night, which is playing with a soul vocal sample and is a soul meets kind of early 90s hip hop song. What else do you like about this record? What styles and motifs that she's like attempting here that feel really effective to you? Basically everything except for the Neptunes works for me. Right. I mean, I love Mine Again, Circles, and If You Knew, I think that the 70s kind of suite is great. I kind of include Fly Like a Bird with them, even though it's a little bit different. I don't think it has the same band playing on Fly Like a Bird. That's her going back to her like gospel, kind of godly referencing songs. Yes. I like your girl a lot. I know people love your girl. I'm one of them. I love your girl. We mentioned singles, but uh, Shake It Off, I think, is amazing, too. Incredible. It is dated, though. I would say, unlike We Belong Together, it really does feel like a product of 2005. Feels very much like Confessions Part 3 in terms of the sound. I like that there's that whole part about my phone's breaking up. It's just like, what? Like, I'm going to communicate about how I can't communicate for no good reason. Got to fill space. Yeah, you realize halfway through the second verse that the entire thing is a voicemail, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Hold up, my phone's breaking up. I'm hang up and call the machine right back. I gotta get this off of my mind. Save this recording because I'm never coming back home is kind of the refrain. Save this recording because I'm never coming back home. This song captures an important Mariah motif, which is just sort of the easy breezy vibe. Like this song feels like a summer day. And the unburdening that I think is a key part of this record. Of course, there are a lot of songs that dig into love, loss, sadness, whatever. But I think a lot of this record is about an unburdening. And this song also sticks with that theme of kind of giving the finger to the past. Of course, here it's framed to a lover. But I think there is a feeling of this as a reset for her narrative. And I think that this song plays into that. And of course, the Mariah-isms, the Calgon commercial reference. Yes. Like, That's the age thing, because I don't even think kids at the time understood what she was talking about. No, nor did kids know baby faces, I only think of you on two occasions. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. Or Bobby Womack, for that matter. Yeah. And then Don't Forget About Us, I think is also really lovely. I think it's clearly a cash-in, clearly a redo of We Belong Together. Her first of a lot of redos of We Belong Together, and maybe the best one. Maybe the best.
us. Sometimes I feel like I like don't forget about us more, even though I know in my heart we belong together is better, but there's something really extra kind of sweet and savoring the sadness of don't forget about us. looked so good in the video. From Touch My Body on, the plot of her videos has been tits. That's it. <laughs> and don't forget about us, she was able to show herself off in a way that still felt novel and she looked so good. And, and then for that to go to number one again too, it was like, oh my God, she's on such a roll. It's just crazy. She could do anything. Defying gravity. I can't overstate how fun it was. Yes. How gratifying it was as a fan to have her come back from death yes. to just own pop music. I mean, crazy. She references this in Bye Bye when she's singing to her father, you never got to see me back at number one because you know how much this meant to her too. Yes. She was just killing it. And I think in some ways it kind of spoiled her and she's chasing the dragon ever since. Well, yeah, we're about to get into that moment, but let's stay in the light for a second. Yeah. I have so much to say about this album. This is my personal favorite Mariah album for so many reasons. I think the triumphant nature of the comeback in and of itself is enough to make this that for me. But I think this is her most consistent album. I think this is an album that dispenses with a lot of the bifurcation that marks a lot of her previous work. Agreed. There's a feeling on a lot of her mid-period work where it's like hip-hop Mariah and schmaltzy ballad Mariah. And there can be a little bit of whiplash between those two things. Butterfly especially, I think. For sure. The thing that saves Butterfly is both modes work well on that album for the most part. It's true. It's true. But even though there's a lot of disparate sounds on it, this record feels unified in a way that a lot of her records don't feel like there's a consistency to it. There's at least an attempt at sort of a mood. I feel like this is the best album, album, Mariah album to me. Yeah. It goes down smooth as a listen. And I was also thinking about this and I'm curious what your take on it is, but the least schmaltzy Mariah album ever? Yeah. This album is one of her most straightforward, soulful, warm, real feeling albums. I feel like for an artist that definitely rebels in schmaltz or sometimes is taken down by schmaltz, this record feels like the least schmaltzy. There's camp here, but it never gets overwhelmed by camp no. in a way that some of the later work does to me in some instances. There's just this kind of self-assuredness on this album against all odds, weirdly enough. I mean, she is at her best when she is comfortable. Mm. When she's not comfortable, disasters happen on stage and on record and on video, and you could see it. It comes out of her pores. Yes. For whatever reason, given how high the stakes were and clearly how much she wanted to be a hit-making pop star again, right. she just seems so comfortable on this record. It's amazing. I wish that she could conjure that all the time. I don't know what it was. It was magic or something. I agree. It's so fascinating because it's obvious how much she wanted it, and yet it doesn't feel thirsty. A re reference to a future song. Yes. But <laughs> it is really miraculous. Somehow she was able to relax into making an album that felt like she just really wanted to make this album. Yep. Yes, the hits were there, but it didn't feel like she was reaching beyond her capacity to get them. It just felt like it came out of her. I don't know. It just felt like she had hits on top of hits here, and she was just on some kind of creative role. Yes. And that, I think, really proves more than anything. You could talk about the early stuff being kind of a flex, but very thirsty itself. Oh, for sure. Even Music Box is thirsty. All of those songs are desperate to be hits, and they were. But this is a way of kind of establishing her artistry for the art's sake. And people were just on board. I mean, it's just undeniable. It's the power of good songwriting, you know? Yes. And weirdly, I think her most grown-up album. Yeah. Her early work was AC, but it felt like a 
young person being forced into a mode of AC and then her mid-period work feels like a slightly older person attempting to recapture feelings of youthfulness or reclaim that for herself. This is the most Mariah's an adult. She's making music that is adult without sounding adult contemporary. It still sounds in conversation with contemporary pop. It still sounds like something kids would want to listen to, but she feels settled into her being on this record in a way that she almost never feels on any of her other material, which I think is part of this music magic. Exactly. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing, in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. What I want to ask you next is, can you just contextualize this as a comeback? How uncommon is it for an artist, especially a female pop star, to have that prolonged level of commercial decline and come back this majorly in their mid-30s? Is there precedence for this? Is this the comeback in pop history in your mind? How do you view this in the grand tradition of comebacks in pop stardom? It's certainly not unheard of. Right. Tina Turner... That was a huge comeback. She never really had the level of success prior to the comeback. The comeback was really what made her in a way. Aretha Franklin, the 70s were really rough to Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. And then she came back and had quite a few hits in the 80s. Yes. Not quite as earth shattering as her 60s work was and early 70s stuff, but still she was a major player. Mm -hmm. Cher is another example. But when you're talking about comebacks, you're really just talking about the song Believe and then kind of the residual position in pop culture. Cher can never release another hit again in her life and she's not a joke. She's not a flop. She's Cher. Exactly. I think that's a direct result of Believe. And also Cher is about the persona so much more than the music. Like Mariah's whole career, especially up to this point, is built on the back of endless hits. Yes. And then Ray of Light, I think, is probably the most analogous because Madonna was so huge and because Erotica was such a punching bag period for her. Yeah. Now, obviously, Bedtime Stories is also a big hit, but there's something about Bedtime Stories that it felt like she was kind of maintaining or... Right. It's slight. Yeah, it's slight. It's weird because it was so present and she was so present, but at the same time, it just didn't really shatter the earth the way that Ray of Light does. Yes. And then Ray of Light is just like, oh no, we never should have doubted her. That's what the moment is like for Mariah, except it's bigger than that, I think. I think this is probably the biggest comeback that we've ever seen because it was so low. Yes. And there was just a kind of timbre to that criticism that it was like she is abject she is awful she's mm. only a joke now with the implication being that there was never anything right. to appreciate there it was like it was always ridiculous and finally the universe has balanced itself out by kicking mariah out of the mainstream so while we've seen comebacks before really nothing on this level at least yeah. in my lifetime that i've ever experienced she was counted out by so many people who then had to eat crow 
Right, this is the comeback to me because I think that Madonna didn't come from as far down in a ditch. And also this record is a comeback both because A, it's not just based around one song, it's a series of hits. And also I think this record shores up the older legacy. This record is a victory lap that helps us understand the previous innovations. Listening to the intricate cadences on We Belong Together and the sort of rap song styles and the incorporations of hip hop elements into broader diva ballads the connection between the soul music and the contemporary hip-hop flows and all of that kind of stuff. I think we understand Butterfly better through this album and for Mariah to release an album at a time where there was probably increasing warmth towards this kind of music. There were suddenly critics out there that were willing to take her seriously, like yourself. If she had not had this moment, who knows how the recontextualization of even the earlier music would have been seen at that point. This record is a comeback, not just on its own terms, but also a legacy building act for the previous 15 years of her work. That's why to me, it feels even bigger than just the sum of its parts. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, like what if Tony Braxton had this kind of a comeback? A hundred percent, yeah. I think she'd be way more relevant yes. today. She wouldn't have had to rely on reality TV to get her face back out there because she was huge in her own right. Yes. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think a lot of what allowed that to happen is the fruits of Mariah's innovations in the 90s were born out in this period. So it didn't sound weird for her to fit into radio, even though she was 10 and 15 years older than a lot of the stars that were operating at this moment. She makes sense in that context in a way that many other stars of her generation would not have. Celine Dion would never have made sense in this context. Totally. Even Whitney for all of her talent, you know? Exactly. I mentioned before that the big voice divas were flopping in the early 2000s. There was not a renaissance of them. Right. It was her on her own. Exactly. So she's also a maverick in that way as well. It wasn't part of this bigger movement of like, oh, now we're appreciating the voice once again. I mean, we've never gotten back to the early 90s. When we start having songs that are acapella on the radio with just harmonies as the melodic foundation, yes. we'll be back there. But it's been 30 years since that's happened. Yeah. So she was conversant enough with the trends, but able to kind of maintain her own persona and people warmed up to it really quickly. Yes, 100%. So just to summarize here, The Emancipation of Mimi is obviously a gargantuan hit. It is the best-selling album of 2005. It's like that becomes a top 20 single. We Belong Together accumulates 14 weeks at number one in the US and is later named the song of the decade by Billboard. Shake It Off hits number two and Don't Forget About Us also reaches number one. It eventually sells 10 million copies worldwide. Mariah comes back three years later with her next record, which is kind of framed as a sequel. It's obvious that she has seen the success of this past record and she is explicitly referencing it in the title. One funny aspect of this reinvention era of Mariah's career is her album titles go from being one word sort of fairy tale childhood, like arrested development things into the most unwieldy, insane melange of words ever put together. So here we get E equals MC squared, i.e. Emancipation part two. Yes. The first single before we talk about the rest of this record is her last original number one. Obviously, All I Want for Christmas is You, which came out in 1994, will go number one later. But this is her last new single number one song. First, let's start with like, how would you describe this song? So Touch My Body is the epitome of the dream and tricky stewards mincing piano thing. Plink, 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 plink. Yes, yes. Prince often has that plinky plink keyboard going on. Yeah, definitely. And also just for anyone that doesn't know, I 
I'm sure everyone listening to the show probably is aware that Dream and Tricky Stewart at this point in 2008 are the biggest pop producers in the game having just produced Rihanna's Umbrella and Single Ladies, which had come out right around the same time as us, right? Yes. And the Dream has his own career right. and is very embedded in R&B radio and has some pop hits as well. I mean, I love the dream so much. Oh, me too. I can't wait to do an episode on the dream. The first two dream albums are epic. They are so good. Yes. And so I love Touch My Body. I love that it's called Touch My Body. <laughs> it is basically camp at this point with her. <laughs> Full camp. I always thought she sounded like Pebbles Flintstone on this song. Just the like <laughs> coochie coochie coo vocal, you know, but I thought it worked. <laughs> Another immediate success. I mean, this blows everybody away. I think there was a quote from L.A. Reid where he was just like, I cannot believe this because there was a little bit of back and forth. You know, the album was going to be called on that chick at one point. Mm -hmm. That was going to be the first single. When I went to listen to Discipline in L.A. Reid's office, he played on that chick as we were leaving. And I was like, is this new Mariah? Whoa. And he was clearly trying to like take the temperature. I think there was a little bit of a fight where somebody wanted on that chick. I think he did. And she wanted Touch My body. Mm. I love Touch My Body. I've always loved Touch My Body. It was a pleasure to listen to Touch My Body in advance of recording this podcast, Touch My Body for Life. Yes. It's interesting in many ways, considering that the linchpin of the comeback was a very sincere song in We Belong Together, whereas I too love Touch My Body, but it is definitely the moment where Mariah as a full-blown camp figure without necessarily a ton of the sincerity anymore feels like it crystallizes. Yes. This song is Mariah as comedian, which becomes a a big motif moving forward. I mean, this song is fucking hilarious. If there's a camera up in here, then I best not catch this flick on YouTube. Because if you run your mouth and speak about this secret rendezvous, I will hunt you down because they be all up in my business like a Wendy interview. Where's Mariah's Netflix special? She could totally stand up and do a tight 30-minute Netflix special. I'm sure she thinks so. Yeah, I'm sure she does too. <laughs> I would watch. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I would watch. It's interesting, too, because I think it almost has this prepubescent sexuality to it. Thinking about Mariah as kind of aging in reverse, there's almost this feeling of tee-hee-hee -hee -like sexuality on it that kind of belies the emotional maturity of emancipation. So it's an interesting single choice, and I think it's interesting as Mariah's last number one. It's, it's almost like a strange coda. And I will say, when I saw the Caution Tour, very few songs went off as hard as Touch My Body did. People really love this song. It really is one of her most enduring hits, even though it feels slight at first blush. It was one of the early examples of a kind of viral YouTube thing where people were covering it. Aretha Franklin had covered it on the tour that was contemporaneous with this era. It kind of had its own life, a kind of pre-TikTok virality where people were owning this song in ways. And yeah, it was a precursor to the way that people relate to music now. People just seem to really get a kick out of this song. Yes, 100%. It's a kicker. I mean, I love this song. 
Yeah. Let's talk about the rest of this record, though, because this is an interesting one. I want to put a few things out there. One is, I think framing this as a sequel to Emancipation is in some ways, yes, but in many ways kind of wrongheaded. I don't really see it that way. It's a very different album than that, aside from the fact that there are literally six attempts to remake We Belong Together, <laughs> and many of them are not successful. They're no. probably the least successful songs on this album, but everything that isn't that is actually not so much playing in that sort of throwback soul vibe that a lot of Emancipation is playing in it. More her trying on a lot of contemporary pop guises. I mean, you have Migrate, which is like her answer to a blackout song or something like that. It's produced by Danger. It has kind of the dark club edge of it's like that. It's filled with auto-tune. Tons of great Mariah-isms in here. We sipping Grigio, be berry buzzing up in my face as we proceed getting past the envious ones. <laughs> I like when she says that she wants to put on an outfit that accentuates her tits. Yes, except she doesn't say tits, she just kind of moans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. And then you have Mariah doing reggae on Cruise Control. Yeah, which was also considered for single. Yes, which is a good song. You have I'm That Chick, one of her best songs. I love I'm That Chick. I love I'm That Chick as well. Again, this feels very much disco by way of contemporary pop music. This does not feel like a disco song. It feels like a Stargate song. Exactly. And of course you have what I know is you and Mai's favorite moment on this record which is I'll Be Loving You Long Time. Yes. Which absolutely should have been the second single. And it was the third single. And Bye Bye obviously was a total dud. God. And it's disappointing that she did that. Why? Why did she do that? But it's also weird because people will come back from bad singles. And I'll Be Loving You Long Time is so undeniable to me. Yes. I actually think if Migrate were the second single, it probably would have gone to number one just because of T-Pain. I mean, yeah, right. clearly that's why that song was put on that record with him. And I believe why they didn't do it as the second single is because she was on Saturday Night Live before the album came out. She performed it. Then she was on a radio show with Perez Hilton that week and he told her that the song sucked, that should not be your single and blah, blah, blah. What a demonic point in pop history when Perez Hilton had that level of influence. I mean, just crazy that people were listening to him that cared what he had to say. Yeah. Just could not think his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> I mean, really, just zero point of view. It's maddening. I think that that fucked up the album more than anything else. I think if Migrate was a hit, I'll Be Loving You Long Time goes top 10. Right. And the album has a much cleaner history than it does because I agree with you. This is very much like a jukebox iPod era album. It's kind of Love Angel Music Baby-esque. Mm. Tons of different styles. Yes, very that. Trying on different stuff. And it kind of all works except for, like you're saying, the ballads. But there are two at least, that I think are great. Yes, I want to talk about the We Belong Together retreads that work and the We Belong Together retreads that don't work. Yes. Thanks for nothing. Yes. And for the record? For the record. Amazing. <laughs> for the record is so good. It's so good. And that's all the record needed. It didn't need Last Kiss. It didn't need Love Story. It certainly didn't need I Stay In Love. I Stay In Love is so bad. 
at some point, like if we had more time, I would be like, let's rank Mariah Carey attempting to remake We Belong Together. Yes. And I think I Stay yes. In Love would be at the very bottom. I hate that song. God. I agree. For the record though, so good. Also for the record is like Mary J. Blige doing Be Without You, doing We Belong Together or something like that. Yes, totally. And there's some really fun, quirky stuff. Like I enjoy the Swiss beat song, OOC. Yeah, me too. This album is underrated, I think, because as we've been alluding to, the second single is the song Bye Bye. Maybe my least favorite song is out. I mean, I don't understand. Is this like a one sweet day sort of yes. vibe that she's going for? A hundred percent. She was trying to recreate the magic of one sweet day. I mean, when I first heard this album, I did think, okay, that seems like it would be a hit. It's a little too obvious, really. But that's one that she has in her back pocket, whatever, because it has the We Belong to type of vibe right. and it's about death and whatever but there were way better songs that she could have released from this record that she didn't and also bye bye the whole mama's daddy's sister's brothers yes. friends and cousins <laughs> yeah. it's very heads and shoulders knees and toes <laughs> it's like <laughs> what are you doing here to say though I think the lack of success of Bye Bye speaks to a broader thing that was going on beneath the surface here, which is something that we've been threading through a lot of this conversation, which is this comeback was hinging on the fact that all the hits were good because she was in a tenuous situation. It's 2008. She's nearing 40 years old. She's been in the game at this point for nearly 20 years. There are generations of pop stars that have come and gone in the span of her career. She wasn't on as solid footing as she was in 1992 when Emotions underperformed or 1991, whatever that was. You know what I mean? Like, I really think as impressive a run as this comeback was, she didn't have a lot of room for error. That's the feeling that I had. Totally. And I think you were kind of alluding to that. She didn't have room for a misstep and this was a misstep. And her career as a hit maker, and we're going to talk about Obsessed in a second, like never really quite recovers from that misstep. And I think that speaks to the ageism of the situation. And I think the truth of the matter is that this comeback hinged on the fact that all of the singles banged. They were all great. Yes. It's like that. We belong together. Shake it off. We can maybe leave say something out of it. Don't forget about us and touch my body all knocked out of the park. And I don't think she had room for a flop on this level. And it really derailed the rest of the record. Because as you mentioned, it ends up producing a number one song, which is not nothing, but sells a fraction of Emancipation. Yes. I'm curious about how you were thinking about Mariah's career after this record? Were you wondering whether that was kind of it for her at that point? Like, where were you as a Mariah fan following this record's performance? I mean, I'd seen worse, you know, <laughs> and I loved this record so much. Yeah. There were times when you'd ask me what my favorite Mariah album was, and I would tell you this. Right. It was just at a point in my life where I was really happy and productive, and it was still close enough to Mimi, and Mimi was such a thing to pull off. It didn't really feel like what was going to happen was necessarily going to happen. Right. In terms of her not really being able to find her footing in a big way ever again, really. Right. But no, it still felt like, well, she could produce this quality material. She's having fun and the melodies are there. So I just want to see her keep going, whatever. Yes. And there wasn't any reason to believe that she was beleaguered in any way. Right. In retrospect, what you're saying is 100% true. Right. There really wasn't room for something as floppy as Bye Bye. Yeah, yeah. So Mariah comes back a year later with her next album, Memoirs of an Imperfect Angel. Maybe which speaks to the 
panic level because I don't think there felt like there was maybe room for the gap. Right. It's a unique album in her discography in that it's largely a collaboration with a single set of people. The Dream, Tricky Stewart, and the rest of their cadre of producers who had, of course, worked with her on Touch My Body, the most successful song from Equals MC Squared. This is probably my least favorite of the latter period Mariah albums. Yeah. Can you talk to me about what's going on here? Of course, maybe let's start with Obsessed. Obviously, her last top 10 single, the greatest diss song of all time, (laughs) where Mariah essentially ends Eminem's life on this kind of lurching, (laughs) auto-tuned, glacial sludge of a song. I mean, I was really underwhelmed by it when I heard it. Mm. It didn't seem to play to the strengths of anybody involved. Doesn't really sound like Tricky in the Dream to me. Doesn't really sound like Mariah. I was still glad it had the profile that it did. It's my boyfriend's favorite Mariah Carey song. There are people who just relate to that song and there was something about the sludginess and the fact that it's not very Mariah that makes people like it. Yeah, It's got that dream vocal tick of the uh, 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 obsessed, the repeating, which is a thing that mars a lot of this freaking record which is a lot of these songs sound like bargain basement dreamy songs. It's true. But there's some good Mariah disses on here. Last Man on the Earth still couldn't get pressed. Got you all fired up with your Napoleon complex seeing right through you like you bait in Windex. Right. You a mom and pop, I'm a corporation. I'm the press conference, you're a conversation. I love that one. <laughs> Those are some good ones. She ended him. Yeah. She ended him for me. Okay, so that's Obsessed. That song goes number eight. What's going on on the rest of this album? And to me, I mean, if you agree with me, why is this record not completely successful? I think it's awfully boring. Mm. I think that The Dream and Tricky are so dynamic as songwriters, but there's a sleepiness to this record. And not all of it. No, there's some good songs on here. I would say half of it I like. Yeah, same. I think Candy Bling is gorgeous. Love it. But also very... I love your girl. Very I love your girl. Yes, that's very true. Ribbon, I think, is amazing. I don't know why that wasn't the second single. Yes, banger. Just give that a try. You know, Hate You is nice, but Hate You is not a hit. No. It's crazy to me that anybody thought it would be. That video is also just a fucking disaster. Her walking on the beach, and I think it's stretched out. Right. Really, really (laughs) weird. She was under weird management at this time, too, which obviously comes to fruition, like, in latter parts of her career. There was definitely, like, a bit of, like, a chaotic feel in Mariah World in general, it felt like. Totally. It's a rap. I think it's great. I don't think it belongs on this album, per se. That song has had its own kind of... in life. Mini resurgence. Yeah, on TikTok. Not enough for it to chart, I don't think, mm-hmm. but the streams are pretty high if you look at the rest of the record. I think it might be the most streamed song after Obsessed. Yes, for sure. It had a big moment. It did. About My Face, I think is great. Amazing. And I love The Impossible. I think The Impossible is Mariah's best sex 
slow jam. Mm. And then all of the rest, you could throw it away for me, especially midway through when we get to standing O, when we've already heard Inseparable, more than just Friends. These songs are all kind of samey. Angels Cry is more treacly than anything she's done since Rainbow. Yes. She covers I Want to Know What Love Is, which is funny in theory, but not in practice. What is even going on here? A lot of it feels really slapped together, but I will say that lyrically, it's basically as eccentric as she's ever been. In the campiest, I'm Mariah, here's my thing, here's what I'm like. She uses the word acquiescent on It's a Rap. <laughs> we didn't talk about her extensive glossary the ten cent of 10 cent words. words. Yes. And then on More Than Just Friends, there's that, I know you want to hit it like the lotto, and after that we can catch up like tomato. We can make love in Italy in the grotto, fresh off the jet at the Met. They're screaming bravo, bravo, bravo. <laughs> Yeah. Even on The Impossible, I love you like Sunset's Bubble Bath on the jet. Love you like Kool-Aid, Louis Millionaire Shades. Love you like Sugar Daddies. Love you like a Pimp Caddy. Love you like a Holiday Duncan Hines Yellow Cake. I mean, you know, at least there's that. No one else could do it. Yeah, at least there's that on this record. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, what a slog. Yeah, this is a tough full album listen for sure. Also, I think important to note, this is where the singing really comes to a halt. Yes. There's not singing on this album. No. Even on the previous two albums, obviously they were finding ways to work around some of her increasing vocal limitations. But this is the album where like the woman stops singing. There's no singing on this, not even for a minute. Yeah, it's kind of screechy and desperate. Right, like even when you get a whistle tone like on It's a Rap, it's a background noise effect. There is no singing on this. And it's really weird to hear that. I think that's part of the struggle of that. Of course, we love Rhythmic Mariah, but I think the last two records did a nice job of balancing Rhythmic Mariah with some of the vocal acrobatics that you want to hear from a Mariah Carey song. And I think that this record really dispenses with that. On the plus side, she has real warmth and I think sensuality that has come through later in her career that never really registered for me like on a lot of her earlier material. There's a lot of world-weary warmth to her on this music. Another dissonant part of this narratively for me is this is the year she got married to Nick Cannon and this is kind of like a breakup album. I know. I wonder what that's about too. It really does feel like they just started to break up immediately. Yeah. And who knows where she's pulling from, whatever, but it is a very strange record. I mean, even Candy Bling, which seems to be a direct reference to him proposing with a ring pop is about, I want to make time stop. I want to go back. Right. The nostalgia factor. The nostalgia factor. And it's like back to what? A few months ago? Like when you were happy? Right. (laughs) It really makes me wonder. It's kind of infuriating that her book cuts off at that point. Yeah. She really does not go into that relationship at all. And it's just like, what happened there? Yeah. All right. So despite the fact that Obsessed is kind of a minor hit, this definitely feels like a very slight Mariah entry. This is the moment I think where a lot of audiences outside of the core fan base and gay men are sort of tuning her out again. Yeah. But I also think this is a moment where another thread in her narrative really starts to take hold, which is the full bloom of the camp diva. Yeah. This is the moment where Mariah, the pop culture camp diva, self-aware of that part of herself really feels like it starts to take hold. Totally. I'm curious if you could describe what that is and how that begins to sort of centralize in Mariah's narrative as her music seems to kind of recede from the charts. You can see it happening in the music. She has a lot of references to like Marianne and other people within her circle that nobody knows. I mean, <laughs> to reference Tori Amos again, it's kind of like Tori Amos, the way that she'll just blather on and right. on about her friend and right. Beanie and 
Trent Reznor and blah, 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 blah. And unless you're intensely paying attention, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. But I think what that bespeaks is this sheltered, I'm at the center of my own universe and everybody thinks I'm hilarious, which I think actually it's funny to behold and I have appreciated it. While at the same time, it gets to be kind of annoying and it's kind of a turnoff to people who don't necessarily think that she's the best thing that ever happened to the world. There's this very pronounced diva saying, darling. <laughs> well, we'll just have to wait and see. You are so inquisitive, my darling. I believe there's footage from her first SNL appearance where she was saying that. So she always had that little thing to her. But there's this whole playing into the diva thing where it feels like a joke, but she'll still be hours and hours late for something. So it's not that much of a joke. Right. Like it's a joke and it's real. Exactly. (laughs) It's almost like making it a joke makes it excusable somehow, even if it has the real world effects of an actual diva who's kind of a pain in the ass to everyone everybody, you know? And I've heard really lovely things about how she is as a person down the chain. Like somebody I knew knew somebody who worked in Aspen where she spends Christmas every year who said that she's the nicest person to deal with. Mm -hmm. I believe that. I believe that she does have this radiating kindness and that she is very capable of being very polite Mm -hmm. while also obviously not giving a fuck if she's five hours late, which will get her into trouble. (laughs) The whole Rockefeller debacle is because she was late. Right. She didn't practice that and she wasn't able to rehearse and then she just went on stage and winged it and fucking tore her career into tatters for a yes. period of time. Yes. Make my wish come true for Christmas. She has a lot of catchphrases like hot tamale and things of that nature. Yes. She talks about her 500 hours of beauty school. Is this when I don't know her surfaces? So as somebody who was paying attention all along, I watched I don't know her basically when it happened. Right. I think it's through Twitter and everything, though, for the mere mortals right. who <laughs> haven't invested <laughs> in Mariah the way she will demand that you do. Yes, it's yes. probably around here. I feel like I don't know her as a major moment in the cementing of the persona. Absolutely. Obviously, for anyone who somehow missed this this is when an interviewer asks Mariah what she thinks about Jennifer Lopez. This was around 2003 and she responds by saying, I don't know her. And the meme resurfaced in the early 2010s and obviously has become like one of the most used Twitter memes of all time. And for anyone that missed our last episode, this is all originating from the beef over the sample that got used in both I'm Real, Jennifer Lopez's song and the original version of Mariah's Lover Boy. And what is with J-Lo? Die kenne ich nicht. Her shadiness and her ability to lacerate is kind of a big part of this persona as well. It is a big part of it, but, and I think Madonna had a similar problem where she played it so wrong because while I don't know her will always be the most iconic part of the J-Lo feud, Jennifer Lopez came off looking so much better just by being kind, just by being like, I don't know, I like her music and I guess she's forgetful, ha ha ha. And it's like, (laughs) oh wow, that's how you be a celebrity. Or even when Mariah, when she, was asked about Ariana Grande and she said something like, well, we wish her longevity. And it's like, just say you like the young people because then their fans will like you too. Madonna caught off such a huge amount of fans by dissing Gaga. If Madonna had just been like, oh, Lady Gaga's great, then she'd have all of those little monsters under her belt too. Yes. It's so stupid. I completely agree with you, but I guess where I would extend empathy to these women and particularly to Mariah is for the ongoing thread of her under 
appreciatedness. It's a strange thing to say this about someone with the most number one hits besides the Beatles and someone who has sold so many records and has been so successful. But I do think to this day, I mean, I will tell you this. I told my parents maybe a year ago that Mariah Carey wrote all her number one hits. They had no fucking idea. They did not know that. They don't think of her that way. They're very aware of who she is. They know all the songs. So I do think there is this continuing thread and maybe it's wrong of her to feel this way. Maybe it's vain. Maybe it is diva-esque to feel this way. But I do think Mariah is somehow undersung in certain aspects of her career. Not to us in the sort of world where we know about this. But I think to the broader public, people think of her as kind of the way she was perceived early in her career. This broad, blunt instrument who was in the sort of lineage of divas that don't write their own music. She is one of the most successful songwriters in the history of music. Yeah, totally. That is undeniable. But does she get seen that way? Does she get mentioned in the breath of other artists that way? No. And she is a black woman. And I think that that's a part of it. So there is a part of me that understands, look, you have someone like Jennifer Lopez who clearly benefited a lot from things Mariah had done. And she felt incredibly slighted for her. It's also linked to a incredibly insidious sounding breakup and divorce. So, I mean, I don't think she's behaved particularly well either. But I think at the same time, I can extend a certain amount of grace to her in that it's way. Because true. I can sense that lack of appreciation. I think that's real. That is not in her head. I think there is a part of her that feels underappreciated. And I think that it's true. She is. I think we're doing some things now to write that for her. But I think that there have been long swaths of her career where even despite her success, there was dismissal. And I think that she still harbors feelings about that. I agree. But when she ends up cratering into this solipsistic, I've never heard drunken love kind of thing. (laughs) And then what happens is that you say something like that and then you get wrote out of the song in which Beyonce names every other Black woman performer, right? except Tina Turner, which is weird, and not Mariah. Those are the two glaring omissions in that Vogue remix of Break My Soul. Interesting. Very interesting. No Mariah, no Tina Turner. And I feel like the Mariah thing has to be something like that. And also, what's so disappointing about that, to your point, the Ariana Grande thing, I think the comparison is ridiculous. I think Ariana Grande has a fifth of the voice as the actual greats in my heart, and yet she's held up like a great by this generation, which is the same generation that will tell you that Demi Lovato was good. Yeah. So it's like there are differences between me and the young people and I'm actually happy to be old if that's the case. Sure. But at the same time, you do your legacy a disservice to act like you're the only one who ever existed. Also, we're talking about Mariah Carey, who's always been conversant with the past, who's always Mm -hmm. given it up to people and has incorporated like, tell me that you still care in the Always Be My Baby. Really obscure tracks. Yes. SOS Band, you know, they had like a 50th of the public profile that Mariah did and she was still big upping them. She has it in her, but then there's just something else about her insecurity and her jealousy and all of this stuff. Yes. Had she been like, Ariana Grande is great, I think she would have done her career a lot more service. For sure. There's a bitterness in this period too that I think registers. I think she's recently let some of this go and I think it's really benefited her. I think she really struggled with that she couldn't find her way back to the hit. I think so too. She had defied gravity in such a major way with emancipation that I think that there was a part of her that was like, why can't I figure this out again? Why can't I crack this code again? I think she was really struggling with that idea. I think we should touch in this moment on the American Idol thing as well. I mean, that happens in, I think, 2014 
what was that about? I mean, this was kind of her worst behavior ever. She got into a gigantic public feud with one of the ascendant pop stars of this moment. Nicki Minaj, whom she had worked with. Whom she had worked with on Up Out My Face, which I think has been erased from history. Yeah. How did that add to the general vibe around her in this early 2000s period to you? I think watching the show, she was definitely hard on Nicki, yeah. but Nicki was no shrinking violent. No, <laughs> no. She was able to give it back as well. Yeah. But I also must agree with there was a bit of a sense and you did look gorgeous, but that you were playing to the camera more than the usual Angie lost in the moment of playing. And that's why I cannot wait till we get to so do 2014,000 songs. <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, oh, no. So you uh, must think that I agree with oh, the entire panel okay. in saying again, back to the Billboard Hot 100 number one song, which you just performed, which is difficult to get. Not everybody has that to their credit, to your credit. You did a great job. So Thank keep you. on singing. And but I think that this is where Mariah's comedic shortcomings are a major liability. She just doesn't have the grace and the wit to pull off the cattiness, really. And so it ends up just looking bitter and mean and self-invested. Although beloved by gay people. Beloved by gay people, yeah. Beloved by the internet. Oh, well, yes, the Provence of Azalea Banks. I mean, yes. I don't trust gay men on the internet <laughs> to tell me what's good, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Being one, I can say that, you know, yes. I am of these people. Yes. So that drama was incredibly enticing initially, but I've paid just about as much attention to Mariah Carey as one could. And even I couldn't really hang with the American Idol thing. Once she and Nikki just built that wall, it became far less interesting. Like you want to see them interact. Do you want to see where it's going? But I just think for every I don't know her is 20 fumbling attempts to seem witty or funny or somehow. And it's just not particularly endearing mm. when she gets bitter. I also wonder how much this kind of bitter and also the sort of over-the-top campiness of this era, in the same way that emancipation went so far in cementing her legacy, how much a generation of people only think of her as this. It's a similar conundrum, I think, that you and I came up against with Madonna on Instagram. Yes. You can erase 20 years of incredible success and cred in some instances in these weird latter period persona shifts. Yes. I I enjoy the Mariah Camp persona to varying degrees. Yeah, definitely. I'm kind of sick of it now, but yeah. Yes, and there's certainly been times where I've really, really enjoyed it. For sure. But I also wonder how much that's who she's crystallized in people's heads in ways that they don't even remember the 18 number one hits. They remember I Don't Know Her and it's runoff. I think the issue is that there's nothing on the other side so much of the time that it's not just that the cult of personality has taken over, it's that the cult of personality has taken over in a context in which she's regularly flubbing performances or worse. Right, it's dovetailing with the musical devolution as well. Exactly, and it's dovetailing with her showing up, not being able to sing very well. Right. And people literally wondering, I'm sure, why was she ever famous? You don't know. Watch that Good Morning America from 1990. Yeah, you'll know. Yeah, and you'll know. And that's what's frustrating about it too. It's one thing if people don't know their history. It's another thing if you don't give people a reason to know their history mm. and 
And increasingly, she has done that. Thank God for the Christmas thing, which I know we'll talk to in a second. I want to talk about that. You know, maybe on the plus, I don't know. She, in this period, also begins to crystallize this Queen of Christmas act. Yeah. Obviously, that had been part of the thread for a long time. I think All I Want for Christmas is You was a hit in its own time. And Mariah's obsession with Christmas, I think, was well known. And also, I believe making that record was kind of a bold move for a pop star at the top of their game at that point in history, where it is now something that everybody seems to do. How does Mariah begin to cultivate and solidify that Queen of Christmas persona through this period? And how has that impacted her legacy in your mind? Well, it's impacted her legacy by making her perpetually relevant for at least a month and a half every year. Right. And that's something that a lot of people don't have. So at least she has that. I think that a major factor here is just the changing billboard chart rules. Because if something can chart again and it can chart high, then it becomes a story. And then it becomes a story and it gets more exposure. I remember in the early 2000s, I, God, the rules have changed so much, but there was definitely a rule in place that said if you've charted once, you can't chart again, no matter what. Yes, right. And so then all I want for Christmas is you does have a certain peak, I think that year or whatever and then isn't it eligible to chart for another 15, 20 years or so. And so then once it is, it starts showing up every year in the late, 2010s, but the upper echelons of the chart, then it finally goes to number one in 2019. And then that kind of solidifies that. And she had done some Christmas shows. She did a Christmas show, I think the year of the Rockefeller thing, which was 2014. I think it became clear in any event to her because she really does, no matter how much she likes to say, I don't don't even know how many number ones I have, whatever, you know, because you'll correct people if they get it wrong. (laughs) When you said they don't know the 18, I guess you meant not including all I want for Christmas is you, but I had the impulse to be like 19. (laughs) Just because I've been trained. A good lamb, indeed. Yeah, exactly. So she knows. And so I think that she just naturally kind of gravitated to that. I believe it was 2014 when she first did the Christmas shows at the Beacon Theater. I think I saw it. I think I saw her first one. Yeah. I think she did more in New York around that time, maybe 2015, 2016. Then she starts doing the tour. Then the song goes to number one and it's a phenomenon and people are writing about it. She did a press tour when it went to number one. She talked to the New York Times. Also, I would like to just say this is like ephemera, but the whole Queen of Christmas thing she is so weird about (laughs) because the first time that I ever saw it was 2013. She was headlining NBC's 2013 New Year's Eve broadcast. This was a press release by her people in which they referred to her as the ordained Queen of Christmas, which I didn't know you could even be ordained as such. (laughs) Then in subsequent interviews, she's been like, I don't like that title. The Virgin Mary is the Queen of Christmas. And then she applied for the trademark of Queen of Christmas and was denied it because there were other people I think Darlene Love may have pushed back. And then there was another singer that pushed back on it as well. And it was ruled that she couldn't claim that title. Yeah. So she's very weird, obviously. Yes, that is an ongoing theme here. Yeah. I'm of two minds about this because, of course, I'm so happy that Mariah gets a spotlight put on her, especially by kids that were not alive during the peak of her pop success. And it's given her a career, like a third life or a fourth life that's just like totally insane that just so many pop stars can't land on. But At the same time, I get frustrated at how it obscures the rest of her music. Yeah. Watching this song become the Mariah song, it's a great song. I mean, obviously, we all love All I Want for Christmas is You. It's phenomenal. Amazing. But watching it eclipse 
all of her other hits is vaguely frustrating to me. I find that annoying. Thinking of her as like a little elf that sings this one song and there's this whole other history there. It just feels like every year that goes by that this song takes over every year, the rest of her work just gets diminished and diminished and diminished. That part of it frustrates me, even though of course she should lean into it and get all the money she can out of it. I just sort of feel like there's something a little bit frustrating as a fan to me about the whole thing. Yeah, there's definitely more to her than Christmas, no matter what the charts would have you think. But at least there's that. Because it's clearly something that she cares about, and it's clearly something that vexes her. So I like to think that, for better or worse, at least she has this to look forward to every year, and she can live another day knowing that she'll be number one again. I mean, the song is going to become the longest-running number one of all time within the next three years. Yes, and she deserves that title. I mean, having number one songs is critical to Mariah Carey's lifeblood. Like, it just is important. Absolutely. All right, so let's circle back. Mariah's released two more studio records neither of which have been massive commercial success, but are two records that I quite enjoy. One is 2014's Miaya Mariah, The Elusive Chanteuse, an absolutely insanely titled album. Yes. And then, of course, 2018's Caution, which has become a bit of like a cause celeb on the internet. Yes. What do you think about these records? We can talk about them each briefly, however you want to approach it. In these latter period Mariah albums, what works, what doesn't? And do you agree? Like, how do you feel about these albums? I feel like Miaya Mariah is also half good. Actually, I feel the same way about Caution. Mm. I know people love it and whatever, but only about half of it is what I want to hear. What works and what doesn't in these records for you? I think Miaya Mariah has a e equals MC squared, throw everything against the wall sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it's at its best when it's being kind of irreverent. I mean, Beautiful was a number one single. Yeah, definitely a missed opportunity. One of her best late period singles for sure. It's But also the album was kind of besotted. So the album doesn't come out till 2014. In 2012, they try with a single triumphant where she's just singing the chorus, which doesn't make any sense. Awful. Then Beautiful comes out the next year. It's great. But then she has this health issue. Then the album was initially called The Art of Letting Go. I guess it was supposed to be much more of a concept of a breakup album. Right. That leaks via some kind of sales circular. She feels the need to go back and change it. So then she changes the title to this absolutely insane title. With the crazy trailer. Did you ever listen to the trailer? It's on the end of the album on Spotify where she talks. Yes, it's absolutely wild. Bonkers. On the back cover of this album is a personal treasure. This is my first and only self-portrait. I drew it when I was three and a half and entitled it, Me, I Am Mariah. Please don't judge me for such a simplistic title. Come on, I was only three and a half. So I feel like the album is kind of a mess, really. I think that there are very strong points. You don't know what to do is great. Incredible. Like a return to like the emotions, disco, heartbreaker vibes. Exactly. Faded. I love Faded. Faded, so good. Talk about nostalgia songs. I like Faded and Dedicated. I love Dedicated as kind of a rejoinder to like her innovating in the pop space with hip hop, going back to Wu-Tang Clan, sampling them, mentioning her. There's something loop closing about that song that I really enjoy. Yes.
Again, Mariah's great at evoking past. You feel like you're chilling on the corner like you're listening to that song. It's got that warm feeling of looking back in time underneath the stars, a different take on that kind of vibe. And she's singing again. I mean, I'm just happy to hear some voice. Yes. Cry, I love Cry. Oh, 100%. So there's something interesting happening with this album that's not successful at all, but in the same way that The Emancipation of Mimi had that suite of the full band songs, yes. this has a suite of piano-based songs. And what I think she's doing is she's trying to recapture Vanishing from the first album, which is a song that she always loved, which is a great, great song. The best songs on both these records, and I think the reason people like Caution so much, is because when she stops being thirsty and kind of chills the fuck out, it's kind of relieving. Like, I think that that's why people enjoy Caution. I know you feel like Caution is almost so slight that it can sometimes feel like it doesn't register in some ways. Well, exactly. I think Caution works if you're an artist in the 70s and you're releasing an album of eight songs every year. Caution is a wonderful addition to your catalog. Yeah. Caution as coming four years after your last record and five years plus before your next, Caution is not the event that it's made out to be given its positioning and time. But Caution is a perfectly fine, slight record. I find it refreshing following Memoirs and May I Am Mariah, two albums that I have things I like a lot about and things I like less about. It's not thirsty feeling, which I really enjoy. No. I think this is the first Mariah Carey album where it feels like she has finally accepted that her hit-making days are over. Yes, I agree. And I think that's the reason that this album works the best for me. Like, it's a tight album. It's not a giant melange mess where there's 10,000 songs and you're like, what the fuck is this? And why do we have this there? You know, which is how a lot of her more recent albums have felt. And I just feel like, okay, you have a song like Get the Fuck Out, Mariah doing Drake doing Mariah. There's no Drake without Mariah. There's nice ways in which she, again, proves that she can be conversant with contemporary hip hop songs without sounding thirsty in the way that like Madonna does when she attempts to like do a trap song or whatever, or do a Drake-S song. It's true. I just wish you weren't doing the patois on that song. Right. <laughs> it just totally ruins it for me. Okay, there's a moment in the middle of this record of three really good songs. A no-no is iconic, kind of like a classic Mariah song, referencing of a hip-hop record from that time period, full-on camp in the fun way. I guess we do get tings, so... Edward Scissorhands, yes. she references in that song. Yes. Irregardless of what transpired. Irregardless, and in the video, she puts the finger quotes up because she clearly fucked that up, and then somebody told her that's not a word, and it was already on the record, so... Oh my god, irregardless of what transpired. So much fun, I love that record. No, no. The distance, incredible. I love the distance. Yes, it's really the classic for me. Almost like Chill Wave, I feel like. Yeah. And some good singing on it, mind-bendingly somehow produced by Skrillex, which is just crazy. I know. <laughs> Going all the way. 
love that song. And Giving Me Life, a left field great Mariah song. That's one I don't get. No? For me, it's Caution, a no-no, and The Distance or The Trinity for me. I've never got that. It's just so dull to me. But I haven't vibed with Blood Orange since the Solange EP. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of Blood Orange, and I love conceptually what he's doing. Right. But his songs just never, ever hit for me. I've listened to full Blood Orange albums and been like, well guess it's not for me. Interesting. I think he's good at creating slow jams that don't feel sludgy, but I guess maybe that's a matter of taste. Yeah. I know that people love that song. Yeah. I just think it presents an interesting mode forward for her, which is, okay, if Mariah can abandon the pursuit of hit songs, I like the idea of her finding some sort of slightly left field R&B conversant collaborator for which she could make a good full album. Fulfill the promise of what the Dream and Tricky Stewart album could have been in its time. Giving me I like the idea of Mariah leaning into making albums. I think that that would be a good way forward that I would appreciate. And I think maybe that song gives you a glimpse into what that could be like. Yeah. So maybe that's a good foray for these last couple of questions, which is what would you like the future of Mariah music to look like? Do you think she's capable of producing another hit song? I mean, Cher had a hit at 50. Could you ever see that happening? Have the charts gotten so ageist that that's not possible? And putting that to the side, what kind of Mariah music do you want to hear entering this part of her career? I do have faith in her ability to kind of do what you're talking about, to kind of make an album's album, to do a caution part two, and to stay in that really comfortable lane. And also discursively, she hasn't set the bar so high for herself. Madonna was dealing with concepts and issues and stuff yes. that Mariah just never bothered to venture into. Right. Mariah could just make a down the middle R&B groovy album, whatever, and we'd all be like, slay mama. Exactly. And the subject matter needs to be nothing beyond love and lost love and the beginning of love and all of the things that she's already done. She'll just say it in a different way and that's fine. That works. Whereas Madonna, when she has nothing to say, you really feel it because she said so much previously. And having something to say is who Madonna Madonna is. Exactly. Madonna doesn't have the voice. She's <laughs> like making a statement is what Madonna does. Provocative. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so let you know. She's a provocateur, Rich. I don't know if you heard about that. She sure is. Art is here to disturb the peace, okay? <laughs> okay, so final question before we talk about the Pantheon, and this is a big one, and most people who are listening to this point have listened to hours and hours of us talking about her at this point, so they'll know. When Mariah Carey's obituary is written, when we are looking back at her, she's someone that leaves a very long and lasting impact on pop music. What do you think are the main things that Mariah Carey will be remembered for as a pop star? Well, the obituary is obviously going to pick the better thing. So I think the songwriting thing would be mentioned. I think probably in death, she'll be recognized for her songwriting. Mm-hmm. She'll be recognized for taking control of her work and staying in that lane like we talked about. Right. The veering off to hip hop wasn't some faddish, you know, bandwagon jumping. It's something that she actually felt and stayed there. Mm-hmm. The idea of a singer-songwriter in R&B, which obviously is as old as the genre is, and yet when we talk about singer-songwriters still, I think we think of Joni Mitchell and people of that ilk, of that tradition. Mm-hmm. The merging of pop and hip hop in a very explicit way that she did. And singing and rapping as a style. Yes, the idea of a singer having a flow yes. basically originated with Mariah. Because you could say, well, she was replicating the Bone Thugs, but they were kind of rappers that were sing-songy. For sure. She was coming at it from a different way. And also, for someone that is that mainstream, glossy, that was a true risk that affected the rest of pop music history. Yes. Re-singing remixes was basically something that she was one of the first people to do it and certainly the highest profile person to do it. Obviously, 
Christmas, the idea that somebody could write, I mean, now it's 30 years old, but a modern day Christmas classic is still kind of unheard of. Yes. There's probably for a lot of people, no division like we felt when it came out. No. But my nieces today experience it's the most wonderful time of year and all I want for Christmas is you. 100% white Christmas. Yes. Yeah. This is the same line for them. Yes. And also just the kind of American Idol style singing, you know? Melismatic. Yeah. Exactly. The melisma. And I feel like every generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. This may be like <laughs> a downside of her legacy because from Mariah's Christina, from Christina's Demi Lovato, from Demi Lovato is who? I mean, it really does get worse and worse and worse. So what you're saying is as time goes on, you appreciate Christina Aguilera more. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying she was the beginning of the fall of civilization <laughs> is what I'm saying. Mariah was fine. Everything else after that has been a fucking cataclysm, a slide into the ocean, which we deserve as a species. <laughs> and the comeback, right? I mean, proving everyone wrong, yes. rising from the ashes, having the biggest hit of her career at that point. That was just the craziest moment ever. It really was. What do you think is the era of her career that will be the most notable to people looking back 20, 30 years from now? Besides Christmas? Yeah. It's probably Mimi then. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's what the kids remember Yeah, if they have any kind of memories. And also, I think for R&B heads, Butterfly. Yes, right. You know, I think that album is important to people. So those two, I would say. Yeah, that's a lot of legacy. As Mariah herself would say, not everyone has that. All right, so let's talk about the Pantheon. I don't know if you're gonna come in with some sort of flaming hot take here that I'm not expecting. I don't think so. Mariah Carey is tier one of the pop Pantheon, right? Yeah, I think more than probably anybody, she follows the criteria to a T. I agree. Her legacy is so based on her metric success. Obviously, we've talked about all the artistic innovations and stuff like that, but I think that Mariah Carey has 19 number one singles. There's just really nothing else you can say about it. And has the reinventions, numerous of them, the comebacks that were as successful as the earlier periods, the influence on the genre, constantly referenced by contemporary artists for her work. I think that's undisputable. I was wondering if there was going to be any hot take on that, but I guess there's nothing really you can say about that. Yeah, no. She's had a number one in four decades. I mean, come on. Who else? Who else? Your faves could never. <laughs> legitimately your faves could never. And as it goes on, it's like, I wonder, thinking about the comeback, are they possible anymore on the same level? I think time has gone on, they've gotten harder. The idea of Cher having that comeback at 50 and Mariah having that, it just feels like once you're out of fashion, you're freaking done these days. And who's gonna come back anyway? Katy Perry? Yeah, right. Well, who wants to hear from her? I think I'll be more interested in Taylor Swift when she's not popular anymore than when she is. Because there will be a time when Taylor Swift is no longer able to just create a hit by willing it to be. Will there? Will it ever end? I think it will. I think will it has to end? end. I think everybody has to end. Yeah, yeah. I think that eventually Taylor will get to a point where she's no longer popular. Yes. But I think that if anybody can pull off that kind of comeback, it will probably be her. A hundred percent. All right. So last question, and you're welcome to pull out whatever you want here. What is an underrated Mariah song from the period we talked about today that you'd like to send the show out on? I think we have to go with I'll Be Loving You Long Time. Oh, for sure. Justice for I'll Be Loving You Long Time. Justice for I'll Be Loving You Long Time, man. That was a fork 
in the road of history that we'll never be able to go down, but can only imagine. Totally. <laughs> All right, so let's go out and I'll be loving you long time. Rich, we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so there you have it. Pop, Pantheon, Mariah Carey, an official tier one icon. Really, what else could it be? The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to Rich Juzwiak for guesting on this episode as ever, but also to all of our wonderful guests on the series, Dr. Brittany Proctor and Aisha Harris. Thank you to everyone who made this series so incredible. And of course, as always, to the incredible Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, to PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Get our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous on December 16th. And until next time, have a wonderful life. Bye bye. Oh.